Welcome to Ask Away with Vince and Joe Vitale and hosted by Michael Davis. Vince and Joe Vitale are currently leading the Zacharias Institute. Both hold doctorates from the University of Oxford, Vince in philosophy, and Joe in women in the Old Testament. In a world that increasingly sees the Christian faith is irrational and irrelevant, it is more important than ever for believers to be prepared to give a defense for the faith. Ask Away is brought to you by Robbie Zacharias International Ministries. It's time to Ask Away. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ask Away with Vincent Joe Vitale. I am your host, Michael Davis. The Christian faith rests and falls on a belief in objective truth. We believe that God exists and has always existed and that he is never changing or subjective to anything other than himself. Christianity cannot stand on a subjective God that is beholden to our view of the way that he should be. That being said, is it possible to prove the God of the Bible is real? Is even trying to prove God exists beneficial or can it be detrimental to one's faith? But before we get started, Vince, could you tell us about your small group curriculum, Unpacking Jesus Among Secular Gods, published by Lifeway? We've been really encouraged by this. Jesus Among Secular Gods uh, is a book that Ravi and I co-authored in 2016. And Lifeway uh, and their awesome team uh, have come alongside it and helped us to produce a small group curriculum based on the book. So it's Jesus Among Secular Gods. We're looking at some of the different secular worldviews that are out there today, Uh, naturalism, hedonism, relativism, humanism, scientism, and then we're comparing those worldviews with a worldview centered on Jesus and looking at the distinctiveness and the uniqueness of the Christian worldview. Uh, we also have chapters in there that are more practical and are looking specifically at the art of conversation and what it looks like to have conversations that count, uh, that uh, don't in any way shut down relationship, but lead to extended deep relationship with people where you can have meaningful conversations and ultimately conversations uh, that center in on Christ. We've been blown away actually by uh, the feedback that we're getting on this and by how widely it's being used. We're really excited about that because we really do think that the best way to learn is not just individually you in a book, but to learn corporately in the context of Christian community. So it really excites me the fact that small groups around the country and more widely than that are sitting down with this resource and engaging, not just for the purpose of coming to know some new things, but for the purpose of actually deepening relationships and being able to share Jesus with other people. Excellent. Okay, let's jump into the first question. This is from Daniel. A friend of mine said to me, I believe there is a higher up that created everything, but every religion points to their God as the one who did it. There is no proof clarifying which God actually created everything, or we would all believe in the same thing. I believe in Jesus Christ and follow in his word, but this was a hard question for me to answer. Daniel, thank you for the question. I think it's one that um, a lot of us will instinctively resonate with because there's something in us as Christians, and I think just the world in general, that as soon as we hear the word proof regarding faith or religious perspective, we all sort of flinch at it and we all feel a little bit uncomfortable, like, oh, we can't talk about proofs because we're talking about faith, which is interesting because we can talk about proof in regards to other disciplines, like we talk about scientific proofs, mathematical proofs, but when it comes to the area of faith, we immediately think, oh, well, Faith and, and the idea of proof are somehow um, a contradiction to one another. And I, I went and looked up the Oxford English Dictionary's definition of proof because obviously 
that is the dictionary that I use. Um, <laughs> not the Cambridge one? <laughs> no, not the Cambridge one. Not the uh, Webster's. Webster. No, we're not going to read that one. <laughs> but the Oxford English Dictionary defines proof as evidence or argument establishing a fact or the truth of a statement. But what I found really interesting was it gave two examples of how this could be used in a sentence. And one of them was, you will be asked to give proof of your identity and then and then used um, as a counterexample, it said, this is not a proof for the existence of God. And I just thought it was so funny that when it came to something that, an example of something that wouldn't be proof, immediately they go to the existence of God. Um, but but I just find it so ironic because I think as soon as you take away the idea of the existence of God and this, that, the fact that that could even be something that we logically believe in, we're now in a culture where I think even the idea of giving proof for your identity is becoming yeah, problematic as well, yes, right? Is. Because, you know, identity is so unstable in our culture. You know, who are we even to say who we are? How do we define anything? The idea of definitions is increasingly becoming uncomfortable. So this this uh, question about proof is really, it's a really interesting one. Should we expect for there to be proof um, for the Christian faith? And now I'm going to happily hand over to the philosopher in the corner to tell us <laughs> more about this. <laughs> <laughs> well, Daniel, I'm excited about what your friend is saying to you. Yeah, A great starting point and great common ground. I believe there is a higher up that created everything. Excellent. Let's linger there for a while. Yeah. You know, that's that's really encouraging. Uh, and, and just start to ask some questions about, well, how does he uh, or she conceive of uh, this higher being? Uh, and, you know, pretty quickly you might wind up in a conversation where you're reflecting on the fact of, okay, there's this higher being. Uh, this being has created everything. Well, it's interesting that the everything that this being has created is designed in such a way and so intricately that human life is possible. Could that potentially point as a clue to the fact that this higher up create, creator being values Sentient beings, values rational beings, values moral beings, values relationship. Well, all of a sudden we start to inch closer and closer towards a God that we could begin to conceive of much like the Christian God. Now, that's not – that sort of philosophy and science is not going to get you all the way to the person of Jesus. But, hey, great starting point yeah. if your friend is already wanting to say to you, I think that there's a higher up. I think that it created everything. Start asking questions. Well, if that's the case, do you think you owe anything to this being? Is there Are there any reasons that you would uh, want to know this being if that being could be known? You know, just think of some creative good questions. Uh, you'd be amazed how much if you just give people the space to talk about what they believe, they'll start pursuing truth oftentimes in quite a significant way. I think this this term proof is interesting as well. And I always find myself torn about what to think about the idea of proof for God, because sometimes I think we're so quick to give away the idea of proof. Well, it's not mathematical proof. It's not a logical necessity. We can conceive of the idea of God even if God doesn't exist. Uh, and so, no, we can't prove God. But sometimes I think we're too quick to give that away. I mean, scientific proof is not mathematical proof. It's not logical necessity. You have evidence that points towards a conclusion. And the reality is that in the scientific realm, the theories shift and change and develop over time quite a lot. Why do they do so? Well, because it's not a logical necessity. It's the best hypothesis based on the data. Or think of legal proof. Uh, legal proof. You know, you have to defend something uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt. Or perhaps it has to be the preponderance of evidence. Okay, well, now we're talking about ways that we regularly use the term proof that sound to me a lot like the way that we're talking about 
proving something like, for instance, the resurrection of Jesus. But it's interesting that as soon as we start to talk about God, everyone thinks we can immediately throw away the term proof, even though actually if you look at the evidence uh, for who Jesus was, for who he claimed to be, for the resurrection, I would say, yeah, put that in a courtroom. I'd be uh, very happy to Mm -hmm. show the evidence that's there and to say in a legal sense, yeah, we have proof. And in fact, in Acts, it says God has provided, some translations say confirmation, but some translations say proof of this by raising Jesus from the dead. And it's interesting you make that point because there have been a number of um, of lawyers who've come to faith for that very reason, because they've looked at the facts of Jesus' resurrection from a legal perspective and thought, well, in any court of law, this would hold up. You know, yeah. this would be more than enough evidence to, um, to convict or to believe. So they've been persuaded precisely because they are counting it as clear proof in, in the way that we actually use the word proof. So I do find that particularly um, interesting. It's also interesting to me that um, your friend is in a place where actually they, they already believe there's a higher up, that what they're looking for is proof clarifying which God did it, um, which I find interesting because often you have a harder time uh, providing proof um, in terms of some of the arguments and the ways that they go that God exists in the first place. I actually think um, once you're already there with a higher up being, yeah. actually um, it's it's much easier to make the case for why Christianity. And I would say that's unique in some ways to Christianity because Christianity is a religion that is particularly concerned with proof. There's something about the fact that when Jesus comes to Thomas and says, you know, touch the scars in my hands and and the one in my side, you know, stop doubting and believe. He's actually coming to him with physical proof. He's saying, hey, look at me, look into this, um, come and see is a phrase that Jesus uses throughout the Gospels. Come and see, come and look. And I think that's the invitation um, that we are given. And I, I think maybe the, the reason people sometimes think there isn't proofs when it comes to religion is because sometimes, depending on the religions you've been looking at, that might not be a question that they're as interested in. I found it really interesting a couple of years ago when Vince was on the um, BBC Big Questions show and he was on a panel of about 10 different people and about five of them were atheists, five were believers. Vince on the believer side, but then he was the only um, evangelical Christian on on the side representing faith oh, wow. um, and everyone else held different faith perspectives. What was really interesting was all the atheists were talking about evidence and proof. And then everyone else on Vince's side was basically making the argument, well, evidence doesn't matter. Proof doesn't matter. And Vince was the only one on the faith side saying, no, this really does matter. And in fact, it's because it matters so much that I'm a Christian because I found the proof in Christianity. But it said something significant about um, what different religions were valuing. What I like about Christianity is it actually really, really values um, the historical evidence um, in a way that's risky. Because if you say proof doesn't matter, that faith is just a matter of believing whatever, then it's much easier to get people to buy into religion if they like the way it looks or if it's going to make them feel good or whatever it may be. But Christianity says, no, the truth really matters. And we're open here to investigation. Either Jesus came and lived and died and was raised from the dead uh, and therefore is the son of God, or he, none of those things happened and he isn't. Um, so when it comes to talking to your friend, that's a wonderful starting point to have because you can say, actually, this religion really does claim there is proof. Come and look at the proof. Yeah. And and if if you don't find it to be true, then fine. You can, you can cross Christianity off the list. But like in any math situation once you find the answer you then don't need to keep looking through all through all the other options because you already know that two plus two equals four you've already found your answers you don't have to keep searching and i would say it's the same with christianity it's a good place to start because there's actually stuff you can test it on or not yeah right and and the christian faith is not 
just a mathematical Absolutely. proof. Yeah. Um, but I, I like what Pascal said. You know, there's enough evidence for, I'm paraphrasing here, but for the heart that really desires God to come to know him. But there's also not so much that the heart that doesn't desire God will be forced to. And I think when I look around the world, that is, you know, very much the experience that I think that I've had uh, and that many other people have as well. It's so interesting, Joe, that you bring up that show uh, on, on the BBC. I did at the time feel like I was debating my side more than I was debating the was other side. Nine against one, basically. <laughs> exactly. From what I, from exactly. What it you know, like. and I think from their perspective, they just thought, well, we have five theists on this side and five atheists on yeah, this side, so it's half and half. But, you know, it wasn't quite that way. But it, it's so uh, encouraging that you just brought this up, Joe, because I don't think I even. Uh, mentioned this yet, but I uh, just saw this yesterday, this um, long uh, message on Facebook from someone who watched that show uh, as a skeptic and uh, thought that a point that was made about the resurrection was reasonable. And that started a search for her. And I've just uh, pulled up her uh, email in front of me, and she wrote the whole testimony that she gave at her church because she was baptized uh, yeah, uh, yeah, April awesome. 15th, and that was the beginning mm-hmm. of uh, of her story. And she says about finally the point at which she began to look into the evidence, and she says, I was quite frankly blown away by how much of it there was. Yeah. And so with your friend uh, as well, Daniel, you know, ask the question, you know, have you looked into whether there could be uh, evidence that would point more specifically to one God rather than just to a higher being in general? And then be invitational. Invite that friend to go on a journey uh, with you to look at some of that evidence. If your friend is willing to do that, that is a great, great sign. And if he is actually seeking God with his whole heart, then we have a promise that mm-hmm. he's going to find him. I also think it's it might be worth just gently challenging his assumption that if there were proof, we would all believe the same thing yeah. because I don't really think um, humanity works that way, does yeah, it? I don't, I don't know. What, I mean, why think that? Because we believe things for all sorts of reasons. There are probably all sorts of scientific things that I don't believe, but it, it's just because I've never asked the question right. or, or really looked into them. If I actually took the time to do the research and I probably come down and think, oh, yeah, that that's true. But I, it's just not a question I've been interested in asking. Or it, it may be that, you know, I don't believe um, faith comes down to where you're born, but for some people it might simply because they've never bothered to consider whether anything else might be viable. Or it might be that... Um, that some people might just set the bar too high. You know, we need to look at what's the reasonable amount of evidence we should expect if God does exist and he wants to know us, but he also doesn't want to make himself so obvious that we have no choice but to worship him. You know, that there's there, there's going to be evidence for his existence, but not something so overwhelming that that it's a compulsion to worship. But, but for some people, I mean, we hear it all the time, don't we? Well, I won't believe unless, you know, God writes his name in the sky in burning letters. You know, for some people, we just set it so high um, that actually we're not going to see anything as proof, regardless of how good an answer it might actually be compared to all the other alternatives we're stacking it up against. It might be the case that there are good reasons to believe, but your friend has never been given good answers because Mm -hmm. the people he's been talking to haven't done their homework either. Um, It might just be the case that for some, they actually think Christianity probably is true. I know many people like this, but they just think the cost is too high, the change it would it would require of their life and, and their relationships, the impact of it, so they shy away. For others, they're just not interested. So there are all sorts of reasons why the, the proof might be very good, but we wouldn't believe the same thing. And Daniel, there's one more way that you can really affirm your friend's question, and that is that if God is just this higher-up being who has stayed high up and far away from our 
earthly finite existence, then actually your friend is absolutely right. Then we can't come to know that God. Then the best we would be able to do just based on natural theology, just based on our natural ability to philosophize about it, would to come to the belief that there had to be a creator. Something had to get this started. But then you can ask the question, what if that higher up being actually came down? And that's where you're in a great position because there, very quickly, you're able to show the uniqueness of Christianity. And you say, look, if that potentially far off God was not willing to stay far off, but actually came down and lived with us, then a few things follow from that. One, it follows that that could be historically verifiable because God actually came and lived a life in history. Two, it would follow that that was a God who was willing to suffer with us. And so that tells us something about the character and the loving nature of that God. And then ultimately, you could begin to zero in on this idea of salvation by grace, not a God that asks us to work our way up to him, but a God who's willing to come down to us. So if you can focus in, affirm that idea, yes, if a God is just high up there, no, you're right. We can't come to know him. But what if that God came down? That's where the really amazing possibilities come to the fore. Nice. Okay, so this next question comes from Jeff. Uh, and, and by the way, uh, Jeff, um, I love this question. Um, I just, uh, it's, but you, you guys will get it once I read it to you. Um, I've been struggling a lot with doubt lately and would be really grateful for help answering these questions. Didn't Paul warn the Colossians against philosophy? Doesn't it really just raise such questions that can't be answered? Will a study of the nature of proof, here's the word again, proof and and knowledge actually be beneficial or will it leave me feeling even more screwed up than I already am? I love you, Jeff. I don't know you, but I love you. Jeff, thank you for just putting that so honestly. Um, and, And I think that's refreshing for everybody because who hasn't felt that way? Who hasn't felt overwhelmed with doubt at one point or another or trying to fit things together and make sense of them? But sometimes it feels like the puzzle pieces aren't aligning and and we can get so in our own heads that that you just kind of wish, oh, I, I wish I wasn't thinking about this stuff at all or I didn't care about it. And I could just you know, breeze on through life um, unconcerned for thinking deeply about these things. But I do think that clarity comes when we're willing to wrestle with the hard questions. I mean, I know we say it so many times, but, you know, it's partly why we're doing this podcast. So thank you for giving us another opportunity to do that. Great challenge. I've heard this one a lot as well. Um, you know, is Paul skeptical of philosophy? Is he um, disparaging of philosophy? And is it dangerous for Christians to be engaged in philosophy? Yeah, Vince. Yeah, we're gonna. Well, clearly, we have some opinions on that in the room. But um, but let me just read the verse from Colossians first. From Colossians two verse eight, it says, "See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not." according to Christ. And um, there's certainly been long-standing debate over this, even you know, within the early church. It was uh, Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, who said, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? What concord is there between the academy and the church? So often there's been seen almost as if we're at war with one another, kind of like the science and faith war. And this has been seen as another area where almost as if we should be fighting one another. Um, I think it always helps... I'm going to say that word again, context. Um, But it it helps to really think through the New Testament context of what Paul is getting at here. Because we actually, 
when you read Paul's letters and when you understand the language of the day and the language of philosophy at the time, particularly Stoic philosophy, we can actually see that Paul himself was well acquainted with Greek philosophy. Uh, he understood the language, the forms that it took. Um, he even quotes Stoic philosophers. So he's obviously read and engaged with their work well enough to understand it. For example, in Acts 17, when he stands up and gives such a good account in front of the philosophers of the city of Athens that some of them come to faith, um, the language, the way he argues is, is, is within that tradition, but he even quotes historic philosopher Aratus um, in Acts 17 as well. So clearly Paul isn't entirely doing away with philosophy. So I think the question for us here um, is what is meant by philosophy in the way that Paul is using this word in, in the book of Colossians? And, and what's very interesting is when you look at language studies in the New Testament, actually philosophy is a word that's used much more broadly um, at that time than it is today. And in particular, it's a word that the Jews themselves used to describe different religious viewpoints. Um, so, for example, the first century Jewish historian Josephus speaks of the Pharisees and Sadducees and Essenes um, as, as um, being sects of philosophy <laughs> rather than um, religion. So it's an interesting use of language. Again, the Jewish writer of Four Maccabees um, he refers to Judaism as our philosophy. So philosophy itself is a word that's being used much more broadly and often to refer to different camps within religion, which makes a lot of sense of the way the word is used in Colossians because Paul is actually dealing with religious heresy in the context of that book. So he's trying to um, argue against a problem that the, the church in Colossians is having, um, particularly around the idea of who Jesus is. And so that's why he talks about Christ as the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And it's very interesting because before we get to chapter two and chapter one in Colossians, um, Paul, Paul, when he's he's writing about um, that it's Jesus we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And when we think about philosophy, actually often that what that refers to is the pursuit of wisdom. So actually Paul is talking about teaching individuals the truth along um, with wisdom in a wise way. And then he talks about um, the not that we need to uh, seek out the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So he's actually using almost these kind of philosophical words. He says, so that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So I guess my, all of this is to say my point here is... I, Paul is clearly cautioning the church, but I think what he's cautioning them against is being taken captive by a philosophy that is within its very nature deceitful and empty. Why? Because it's according to human tradition or the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So I think that's kind of the litmus test here. It's not that philosophy in itself is a bad thing, but it's about what is it founded on and what is it pointing towards? And let's not be, we might need to engage with different philosophies because how else are we going to persuade and convert the world as Paul does in Acts 17? But we don't. what we really don't want is to be taken captive by it. Amen. Does anyone else have anything I'm hiding like under to the table, just waiting for her to finish that answer? great. There's a biblical scholar defending philosophy. I mean, yeah, that's never right, happened babe, before. That's, well done, Joe. Well done. Yeah. Uh, Robbie asks what the difference is between philosophy and a large pizza. Does anyone Who know? Lost that? Robbie. Robbie. Yeah. What's the difference between philosophy and a large pizza? A large idea. pizza can feed a family of four. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, philosophy is dangerous. You may not wind up uh, with a job. <laughs> uh, but, but this is a question that I, I relate to very much because my story is one of 
coming to faith in part through studying philosophy while studying philosophy. And so I had this tension going on between the way philosophy was playing some role in drawing me to Christ and then these warnings of Scripture, which Jeff you mentioned, uh, and that Joe's spoken to in Colossians 2.8, and uh, absolutely right. It's a matter of context. I look earlier in Colossians 2 as well. My goal is that the believers may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding. So Paul wants us to have understanding in order, in order that they may know the mystery of God. He wants us to know the mystery of God, namely Christ, Uh, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So that's the whole context. He does want us to have understanding, wisdom, knowledge, even about the mystery uh, of God. And then when we get to that uh, Colossians 2, 8 verse, uh, see to it that no one takes you captive through this hollow and deceptive philosophy, not always translated, but there's a definite article there uh, in the Greek, which is interesting. So he's talking about a specific philosophy, as Joe has already said, and then says exactly what kind, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. And again, it doesn't say don't engage in the philosophy. It says don't let the philosophy take you captive. Those are two very different things. Uh, One other example that I really like is in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says that his message was not wise and persuasive words, and that's sometimes used to kind of undermine the value of apologetics or philosophy. But then if you go to 2 Corinthians, this is chapter 5, Paul uses the very same word to say, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. So he says he doesn't use persuasive words, and then he says he tries to persuade others. So unless he's flatly contradicting himself in two subsequent books, then clearly the context has something uh, to do with that. Otherwise, he'd be arguing against himself. He'd be arguing against what he did in Ephesus, where it says he entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively uh, about the kingdom of God. Uh, And of course, I think sometimes we forget this, but we just forget that Jesus was a fantastic philosopher, Mm. right? I mean, every time Jesus tells a parable, He's doing philosophy. He's giving us a common everyday experience that doesn't have anything to do with religious on the surface. He's just talking about coins or farms or fields or animals. And he's asking us, hey, what are your intuitions about this type of common everyday case? And then he's saying, oh, okay, interesting. Well, now why don't we apply those intuitions to this situation about God, which is similar in relevant respects? He's he's logically moving principles that are derived in one context and applying them to another. That's exactly what philosophy is, and Jesus did it better than anyone. And I think um, I think this is so important for our evangelism. I think this is what Paul gets at when he says, you know, to the Jews I became a Jew, and to the Greeks I became a Greek. You know, what does it mean to become a Greek in that context? It means to engage in this world of philosophy. So I think um, it's really sad to me when Christians sort of bow out of disciplines like this because we're afraid of it, because um, how else do we reach an unreached world? How do you reach the philosophers? How do you reach um, the academy if we're not willing to learn the language that they're speaking in order to present Christ in that arena and that environment? Um, nevertheless, I do think we're it's it's absolutely right that, you know, Jeff, where your question is coming from is one of caution um, and, and And it's right to be very careful in the way that we handle these things. That's why Paul is warning about it, because the truth is it can be easy within that context if we're not rooted 
in Christ and or if we don't have the right motivations um, to be taken captive. That's why Paul does warn in Corinthians about the wisdom of the world and, you know, that particular warning that knowledge puffs up. And so often I see this, that we um, we can get taken captive in this kind of academic realm where it becomes all about what you know and um you know, and, and, and faith can be something that's almost despised or looked down upon. So I do think it's a right to be cautious about it, but it doesn't mean that we don't go there. It just means that we go there with our eyes wide open to what the pitfalls might be and 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 um, put, maybe putting things in place um, in order to um, to safeguard your faith or to make sure, for example, you know, when, when we were wrestling with some really hard, deep questions um, during our years, you know, um, when we were at graduate school, um, it was really important to me that we were a part of a group of, of, of other Christian PhDs who would meet together at every fortnight. Fortnight is every two weeks or so. And the game. And, yes. Sorry. <laughs> oh, I don't know what the game is. You can explain that to me later. Sure. But anyway, so um, just to ha- be part of a group where we were accountable, where we could bring up some of the things we were studying that we were finding difficult and wrestle them out with other Christians who took the Bible seriously, who were very smart, who understood the issues and could help us work through them rather than just working through them in the context of a classroom where sometimes your professors can be particularly hostile to faith and it just depends where you're studying there are amazing christian philosophers in a lot of different universities and um, i also know of someone who lost their faith at, at berkeley and um, because they were studying rhetoric and philosophy and it was so hostile to christianity that it just tore the whole thing apart thankfully she's she's become a christian and then come back to you faith but but it was a challenge for her because it was so deconstructed so often it, it depends on who you're up against and whether the environment you're in is particularly hostile so, Vince, uh, considering you are the philosopher here, um, how do you think that subordination to Scripture or subordination to the Christian worldview uh, potentially protects you from falling into the trap that uh, that Paul was talking about? Yeah, that's great. That's really important. Uh, and one verse which is significant for me is 1 Thessalonians 1.5, uh, and Paul says, Our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, uh, and with deep conviction. So yes, we want saying we want to value philosophy, but in the context of a biblical worldview where we know first and foremost we've been given an infallible authority in the mm-hmm. scriptures, and that all of this and any pursuit of truth and any acquisition of truth that we could have through any means has to be by the power of God, by the Holy Spirit, and by a deep conviction that can only come from the Spirit of God. And I think sometimes we just radically underestimate uh, how much God is doing, uh, even when we're participating and when he's allowing us to participate in the most minimal of ways. You know, if I'm, uh, you know, just walking along the street and I get a philosophical idea, I didn't do anything to get that idea. It just popped into my head. That's grace. That's a gift of God. That's by his power. That's by his uh, Holy Spirit. So even the fact that we live in a world that's ordered, the fact that our brains are uh, aimed at truth and not just at survival, all of these underlying assumptions that even allow us to do philosophy uh, are only the case because of who God is, what he's done, uh, and ultimately what he's revealed to us in the scriptures as well. Uh, One other broader question that I think relates to this whole conversation is just how we relate as Christians to culture, philosophy as one significant aspect of culture. And I just – I have Reinhold Niebuhr's categories, some of his categories in in the back of my mind. Are we going to be Christians against culture? Well, then that isolates us. We withdraw from philosophy and other aspects of culture, but we also then don't have an influence on it. Or we could be Christians just of culture. We could just assimilate or conform, and I think that's what Paul's talking about when we're taken captive. Or 
there could be a participation in Christ redeeming culture or transforming uh, culture. And I think that's what we're called to in terms of our engagement with culture generally and also in terms of our engagement with philosophy. And just like you said, Michael, that's where the subordination comes in, where we have our starting point in who God is, what he's done, and the scriptures he's revealed to us, and then that is our starting point for being able to redeem or transform culture. And then 2 Corinthians 10.5, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So again, there's that turning around. It's not that the hollow philosophies of the world take us captive, but that we go out with this confidence we have uh, in what God has revealed, and we take captive every thought and bring it into obedience to Christ. So I think in terms of um, just bringing it practically back to your question about, you know, will it leave me feeling more screwed up than I already am? And, you know, as someone who's wrestling with doubt in that moment, I think the best encouragement I could give you is, sometimes what people seem to do is is they they put God in a box and then try and deal with the question without him. They try and reason it out or wrestle it out without going to God um, for the answers. I know I've been there myself and I got stuck in a rut for months on end because I was trying to work through some of my doubts, but without bringing God into into the actual wrestle. And, um, and I think that's when it, it leaves you more messed up than you are. I only found clarity actually when I invited God in to my wrestling when I said, will you show me what is true will you help me to understand who you are within this um would you guide my thinking would you guide my thoughts and and it was it was um in that process of bringing it to god that clarity came and um, and it you know it didn't all come at once it didn't mean that i didn't still have some questions left of course but you know we all still have questions about faith that we're still working through that's a lifelong process in many ways but and um, but that's when the conviction came um that's when, you know, I, I, in a way, sense the power of the Holy Spirit leading me down pathways into truth that that took me out of that place of, of feeling wretched and, and really messed up and, and felt like, OK, yes, this is a path that I will be walking for the rest of my life, learning who you are, God. But actually, I'm excited about that rather than finding it overwhelming and fearful. Well, guys, we are out of time. Vince, sum it up for us. Well, I think it's a great place to uh, end, Joe, uh, and on this point that God ultimately is personal. Uh, it's not just a theory. And you know, as Christians, we're called to love the truth. And I think you can only do that in the deepest sense if the truth is relational, if the truth is a person. If you're trying to love and trust and serve something and that thing is just inanimate, if it's just a theory or a, a presupposition or a philosophy, I think you're setting yourself up for failure then yes, then you're going to wind up messed up because the Christian faith is asking you to love, to trust, to serve something. And those are deep emotions, affections, commitments that we can't just have about an abstract philosophy. We can only have about a person. That's why it's so important that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so I think our final encouragement to you would be uh, when embarking on philosophy, yes, you are doing philosophy but you're not asking your questions of a philosophy. You are asking your questions of a person and to a person, a personal God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we think that conversation that happens in the context of relationship is what will ultimately lead you to truth. Vince, Joe, thank you guys for joining me. Thank you all for listening, and we will catch you next week. To find out more about our ministry or to donate, visit our website at rzim.org. If you're listening in Canada, that website is rzim.ca.